The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is clear that what we need is a framework that will at least capture the primary buyers of these technologies. These are rule of law binding rich countries who want to buy these tools for legitimate criminal investigations. They could then leverage their procurement power against these companies to increase a large number of companies to comply with the standards they possess. So we need to create a framework that captures enough companies and enough governments within it, making it a multi-stakeholder solution. That solution will need to be binding on all the parties, not voluntarily undertaken, and would need to put an emphasis on accountability. Now, we need to still preserve the secrecy inherent to the industry, yet if we are ever to create a legitimate marketplace, we need to have some accountability, so some framework around grievance mechanisms. All of these are the elements that I would propose to you should be part of an international framework. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, And this is the Lawfare Podcast for August 9th, 2023. The increasingly pervasive use and abuse of spyware by governments around the world has led to calls for regulation and even outright bans. How should these technologies be controlled? Asaf Lubin, an associate professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law, thinks that the best path forward is an international agreement that would regulate, but not outlaw, these important national security and crime-fighting tools. He's just published a paper for Lawfare's ongoing digital social contract research paper series, making his case for what he calls the commercial spyware accreditation system. I spoke with Asaf about why current efforts to control spyware are insufficient and why only a global regime can do the job. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 9th. Asaf Lubin on regulating commercial spyware. Asaf, let's start by setting the stage. What is spyware? Who makes it and who uses it? That's an interesting question, actually, because there is no well-defined customary definition of what spyware even is. Um, So why don't we come up with a working definition for the purposes of our call? Essentially, these are technologies or services, solutions that are meant to assist primarily government actors in conducting investigations. Uh, The core of those would be national security investigations, but they can also be used for criminal purposes. And they involve the tapping and hacking into devices of 
targets. And so depending on your spyware solution, the targeting could be different, but the core of it is identifying vulnerabilities in smartphones and and tablets and computers that could then be uh, exploited for the purposes of providing unauthorized access to to an actor. And so in so doing, what these solutions are offering is off-the-shelf, either, again, services or tools to be utilized by government actors for the purposes of going after the targets they want. And that is also where the possibility for abuse comes into play. I mean, what you just described sounds to me an awful a lot just like malware. Is there any difference at a technical level between this and what we think of as malware? Or is it just when the government does it, sometimes it's okay? So, so again, that gets us to, to kind of trying to define um, spyware. And, and the dual-use nature of, of these vulnerabilities, the, the vulnerability hoarding, the, the vulnerability development, is precisely what, what makes them a little hard to define. That is to say, if I am designing a tool that exploits a vulnerability for the purposes of penetration testing, now I'm a legitimate white hat hacker Whereas if I am using the same technology for the purposes of going after political dissidents, now this is malicious and, and illegal and, and needs to be deterred and prevented. And so th- there's, th- there's a duality around, around these tools, which is precisely why it's been challenging in the export control space to try and define them and thereby regulating them, because we want to keep the good tools to be utilized for the good purposes while denying the bad tools from being utilized for the bad purposes. How centralized is this industry, both in terms of which entities and which countries are producing these tools and which entities and which countries are purchasing, leasing, licensing, and using these tools? Yeah, that's an astute question because it is true that there's both private commercial actors who are selling these tools as well as governments who are selling these tools. So we've seen these tools being uh, provided as part of surveillance diplomacy by the likes of China uh, and Russia who have provided these solutions as part of arrangements in collaboration with foreign governments. Uh, But it's obviously is also a vibrant market. In fact, Privacy International had a surveillance industry index and SII for a very long time. And they've been tracking the companies involved in this industry going back to the early 2010s. So we're looking at a broad range of companies. They operate from a broad range of places. There's European countries. Israel is obviously a huge um, supplier of these solutions. But one of the, the benefits of these companies, what makes them agile is their ability to merge and adjust and change locations in searching for laxed regulations that could assist their better management of their activities. And on the on, on the purchaser side, there's also a range of governments. Essentially, any government can buy these technologies. And so long as there's no export control restrictions on who you can sell to, these companies will sell to anyone who's offering them the money they seek, they're seeking. So it can be democratic countries and authoritarian autocratic countries, can be countries with good human rights practices and countries with a history of human rights abuses. And that is precisely what is opening the door for a lot of the problems that we've seen in this industry. You write in your paper about this kind of explosion of reform efforts and attempts to put some regulation on this industry that's that's arisen I mean, really only in the last year or two and is ongoing as of this moment. Before we get into sort of what the shape of that is and what the, the drawbacks are 
that you see in these efforts. What is it that has recently gotten the attention of, in particular, the, the US and the EU and, and the UN? I mean, obviously, I think a lot of us have, are familiar with the, um, the, the murder of the Saudi dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the use of spyware uh, in, that, in that instance. But presumably, it's sort of more than just one isolated incident, no matter how tragic that one was. That, that's correct. I, the cynic in me would tell you that I think one of the things that have come out in recent revelations around the Pegasus reports, around the use of this particular spyware by this Israeli company, NSO Group, the, the spyware is called Pegasus, has been the targeting of government officials, including heads of states. And I'm, I'm saying I'm the cyn- this is my cynical view because in the wake of the Snowden revelations, going back to back to 2015, 2016, those were two the kind of things that triggered international regulation. Right when we learned that the NSA was going after Angela Merkel, that's what triggered all of a sudden Germany or the or the Brazilian leaders. Uh, Germany and Brazil coming together and promoting a UN General Assembly resolution on uh, the right to privacy in the digital age for the very first time ever, right? And so it's it's cynical, but in reality, obviously, that's where the crown jewels of national security secrets are. And so it's it's not surprising the governments will be particularly concerned when when these individuals are the kinds of individuals who are being targeted by these tools. But yes, in addition to that, we've also seen reporting, a lot of it coming through amazing work done at, uh, over at Citizen Lab in Canada, identifying misuses of these kinds of spyware tools, in particular Pegasus by NSO Group, going after human rights advocates, going after political dissidents, going after journalists and attorneys who are doing anti-corruption investigations. And so there is a real rule of law, democracy, a threat argument being made, which is why, for example, the U.S. has used the Summit for Democracy as one venue through which it has been promoting these kinds of international regulatory efforts. In your paper, you go through what are the the major types of regulation that is being sort of attempted. Um, And you find sort of flaws in each one of them before you then go off to to your own proposal. So I want to work through all that because there's a lot of of rich stuff in your writing here. Let's start with the first type of regulation that you discuss, which is industry self-regulation. And I I will admit, I'm kind of surprised that anyone even bothered to try this. I'm not terribly surprised that it doesn't work. Um, But am I being too cynical? I mean, you know, even even though this was insufficient in your view, is there anything to this? Um, Or is this just sort of what what I would guess would be just pointless PR. So corporate activity is the first line of defense. There's there's no question about it that the companies have some vested interest in this space. And there's there might be ways to economically leverage certain power and, and chokehold spaces through which to compel companies to, to understand that it's in their self-interest to self-regulate here. Why, why am I saying this? It's because these companies' primary clients are government actors, and the government actors with the ri- deepest pockets tend to be in those richer countries who are also democratic. And so theoretically speaking, if enough of those countries alluded to these companies, you better step up your game or we won't buy from you, then that could generate some kind of self-regulation ac- among the industry. We haven't seen it happen, and we haven't seen it happen in a lot of other places, right? And so the the literature around corporate social responsibility does a great job at identifying why corporations are not playing ball around good 
social responsibility practices. Here, everything is just exacerbated by the fact that everything is covered by secrecy. We don't know who's buying from whom, when, and how. And so there's a lot greater room for plausible deniability and for malleability, knowing the reputational costs might be lowered. And then on top of that, there's a lot of ambiguity about how these technologies are to be designed, how are they to be sold, to uh, what actors are the kind of actors that should be allowed to buy or not buy, because there hasn't been good standardization of this industry. Um, it doesn't help that this industry, while, while somewhat diversified, is still very much in control of a set of, say, 400, 500, 600 companies, all a question of how you define the technologies and services in question. But but it's a, it's a relatively small space in which these companies um, operate. And so they, they have, and especially if they have a good solution out there, particularly by good, I mean a zero-day vulnerability-based tool, a military-grade spyware that can really go after a lo- large swat of devices and networks, that tool or solution is going to be sought after. And it's going to be very hard to persuade a government not to buy it because it tends to be a company that has been notorious in doing bad things. And so we haven't seen a lot of interest both on the supplier side and on the client side to create the incentive structures within the market to self-regulate. I want to draw out the point you made about secrecy, because it seems to me that, that this issue, that you know, a lot of this is not happening in public, makes not just, let's say, something like industry self-regulation, but frankly, a lot of different regulatory approaches difficult. Because obviously, if things are secret, then there's a temptation to defect and any actor, even if they want to be a good actor, a good corporation, a good company, a good country, well, they can't be sure that their counterparty is playing fair as well. So because of that, they defect. I mean, I'm curious, can you, can you, how, how, how much of a challenge is the pervasive secrecy here to getting this under control? So we need, So there's no question. There's a lot of secrecy about what are the tools, who are the companies, who are the predominantly, who are the clients. A lot of these companies say that the client base is proprietary data that they're not willing to share. And by clients, I just mean, I don't just mean wh- which are the countries that are buying, but the individual buyers within each country. We also don't know a lot about the contractual language that these companies are utilizing. Interestingly enough, NSO Group was the first company, you know, the most notoriously bad company was also the first company to put out a transparency report, which uh, Amnesty International called a PR brochure more than a transparency report. And yet the report was NSO Group's attempt at being the first to kind of, let me tell you a little bit about our practices, the buyers, and including at the bottom an annex of contractual language that they use in some of their contracting. I don't think the model that they put out is necessarily the best one, but the idea of transparency reporting from these companies is a good way to tackle some of that secrecy. And one could imagine mandating transparency reporting in the same way that we mandate them in other national security contexts, say the Facebook transparency reports around governmental requests for data from Facebook or from uh, Google or Apple and so on. But so, so that's one thing I want to say. The other thing I want to say about secrecy is that we have to understand that this is a highly regulated industry because 
All of these companies are working through export control regimes that are operative upon them within each of the member space states. And we can talk about why these export control solutions are not working either. But the idea is that each of these companies will need to be licensed in some sense. They need to be reviewed in some sense by their host country. And so it opens the door for greater um, scrutiny on the part of the countries that are regulated, are hosting these companies. And those countries can then talk with other countries through bilateral negotiations. So the ability to increase transparency through diplomatic channels and through licensing and export control is certainly available, but we don't have standardization of those export controls either. We don't have standardization on reporting requirements either. And so there's just a lot of gaps and a lot of companies falling between uh, the lines here. Let's talk about the next kind of regulation that you sometimes see, um, which is its own kind of private regulation, say lawsuits. There have been some high-profile lawsuits. Um, I'm curious if you think they've been successful even at the kind of retail level. Um, and also, why do you think that even if they're successful at the retail level, they're just, they're just not up to the task of uh, dealing with this challenge? Yeah. So let, let's start mapping out what we mean by lawsuits here. So um, who can go after these companies? The, the one obvious actor can be the victim. Okay. So the person who's been targeted by the surveillance tool. They can go after these companies claiming my privacy was violated or worse, as we saw, for example, in the case of Khashoggi, my, my, my husband was murdered you, in part through the utilization of your tool. And so you owe compensation to me because you were complicit in this tortious activity. Uh, so, so that's one, one, one category, the victims going after. The other category is the infrastructure companies going after. Uh, these companies. They're saying, you're abusing my infrastructure in ways that I never authorized you. You're in so doing, violating my terms of service, my policies. So this we've seen, right, with WhatsApp going after NSO Group or with Apple going after NSO Group. Here, the claim is, it's not, I'm, I'm a victim in this process too, because you're utilizing my solutions to hack the users of my products, my, my iPhone, my, my WhatsApp um, software tool. Why do these kinds of litigation tactics don't work? There's many reasons. One of them is that they're all ex post. So first, the harm has to happen. You have to learn about it in order to bring an action. And so the ability to scale up these kinds of action is extremely limited. And that takes us back to secrecy and uh, all the problems that secrecy generates. Another set of challenges has to do with whether or not our uh, legal tools are up to task with addressing these kinds of harms. So in a different podcast that we had with Oren Kerr, where we talked about here in Lawfare, where we talked exactly about this kind of litigation by Apple, Oren Kerr had very strong views about whether or not existing legislation here in the United States, namely the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, can serve as the vehicle through which a company like an Apple can bring litigation against NSO Group precisely because of Apple not being the target of the of the intrusion, rather the intrusion happening on the phones of the individual users through Apple servers. So, so the problem essentially is that we have legislation that was written a long time ago, or we have common law torts that um, were produced over time that it might not be addressing the kind of unique harms being produced by, by, by spyware technologies. Um, and then obviously the last thing I'll say is that there's 
a ton of evidentiary challenges. So even if we went through all of this, there will be the question of what evidence do you have to support that NSO, say just to name one company, did it, that NSO did it in the way that meets all the elements of, say, the tort uh, in order for you to prove the full scope here. And, and it's particularly challenging where these companies are not located, where the victim's harms are felt. So these are transnational exercises of investigation that are really hard to, to achieve and complete. So, so far, we've talked about self-regulation. We've talked about regulation through private parties, whether victims or companies. Let's now turn to sort of the, the big guns, as it were, government regulation. And there are lots of types of government regulation that you talk about, you know, ad hoc bans, sanctions, all the way up to full moratoriums and just outlawing this stuff in one's jurisdiction. Um, just walk me through the sort of typology of options here and, again, why you think none of them are sufficient uh, for the scale of the problem. So, let, let, again, as you correctly identified, there's, there's kind of a lot of different types of governmental regulation that we can imagine. So let's start with sanctions. We, we've certainly seen a lot of that recently uh, from the United States, Commerce Department. In, in this context, what we do is you identify a particular set of companies who have done particularly nefarious things, and we blacklist them, meaning that we put them on some list that says any company working in our country should not be w- trading with, should not supplying services or solution to that company. So it's blacklisted. And if, if that, if that blacklister happens to be the United States, that could be a death sentence to a company because that any kind of spyware solution needs to rely on cloud providers. There's only a handful of those. And if those cloud providers don't want to do business with an NSO group, that NSO group will have a hard time continuing to run its business. The argument goes. Interestingly, though, that exactly is what happened for NSO Group. And in case you were wondering, NSO Group is still functioning. <laughs> and so it shows you that the reality is that these companies, they're, you know, they're highly rich with skilled f- employees who will find new technological solutions to addressing the limitations that are imposed on them through sanctions regimes. And while I, I should know, it's, it's not like an easy breezy day at the park for NSO Group. NSO Group has been sending advocates both from the Israeli government and its own employees, to go talk to people on the Hill constantly since these sanctions were imposed on it. So it's clearly not great for their business, but it hasn't denied their ability to continue to have clients that are paying for them. So sanctions are only as good as the sanctions regime they set. And obviously, as we know in other sanctions contexts, when you think about, say, the sanctions against Russia in the context of the war in Ukraine, you also rely on all countries to play ball because as you need a broad sanctions net. And if the sanctions uh, blanket is thin, then you will have ways to get around it um, and to continue to, to conduct your business. So, so that's, that's one huge problem with sanctions. The other is, of course, defining what bl- companies should be blacklisted in the first place. Congress have passed legislation that has called on the Office of Director of National Intelligence uh, and the State Department to design factors that go into a blacklisting analysis for uh, any future blacklisting done either through Congress or done through uh, the Department of 
commerce. And that has been a, a struggle. I, I can tell you from, from conversations I've had with folks uh, at the State Department that I, there is no kind of well-defined categorization of what factors should go into when a company crosses a line. How much evidence goes beyond a, a single mistake to, a, to an egregious set of mistakes to recklessness in human rights abuses in the countries you're selling to and so on. And so we haven't, as, a, as an international community, set a categorization of what would qualify blacklisting in these circumstances. And, and the last thing I'll say is the bottom line is that all of this is very ad hoc. It's predominantly motivated by a lot of media attention. I think there's a reason why a set of very limited companies, Chinese, Israeli, have been the core subject to these kinds of sanctions from the United States. They have been tend to be the, the more broadly identified and categorically rejected companies. But there can be a lot of other companies who are less known, and therefore they continue to sell through because uh, sanctions is not applied in a systemic or systematic sort of way. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One thing that isn't ad hoc, of course, are just straight-up moratoriums and blanket bans. You are, are not a fan of them, and uh, I'm, I'm curious why. Yes. So... Um, moratorium has been the talk of the town, okay? Special rapporteurs uh, from the UN Human Rights Council, uh, human rights and advocacy groups have all been calling for moratoriums. A report from the PEGA committee, a subcommittee within the European Parliament, has also advocated for, for the use of such moratoriums. Here's the problem with moratoriums. First, they're very badly defined. What do we mean when we say a moratorium? A moratorium on what and for how long? And so let me offer you uh, the broadest possible definition. All spyware, given that we are struggling to regulate it, should not be on the market ever. Full stop. A complete tech ban. What would the world look like if that is the kind of regulation that we imposed? I will argue to you that that would be a terrifying world to live in. And to understand why that is, we need to talk about a topic that is probably known for many lawfare uh, listeners, which is the encryption debate, the crypto wars. So for many, many, many years now, we've been fighting this long challenge around the encryption of communication technologies, and in particular, how end-to-end encryption is complicating the lives of law enforcement who want to continue to investigate serious crime and are finding it harder and harder to do because, quote, the world is going dark. And so in the face of going dark, what they have called for is front-end or back-end backdoors. And we're not going to get into what those kinds of discussions mean, but the idea is we want to 
the, the very companies who are developing these technologies and are designing these encryption tools to also ensure there is a backdoor there whenever we need it for our criminal investigations. If we have a backdoor there, as many have said before me, what that opens up is the possibility that malicious actors will also go through that door because the door is a door. And if it's there, it can be utilized by law enforcement. It can be utilized by a Russia. And so we have fought against that for very long. And you know what is the pressure evolved that allows our environment to still function despite not getting backdoors on devices? It is lawful hacking. So law enforcement having the ability to hack devices and service and, 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 and networks is precisely what they now do in lieu of compelling the companies to provide them backdoors. If we take away the primary tool for lawful hacking, aka spyware solutions, they will go back to demanding backdoors on devices. We saw this play out in the Apple v. FBI case, notorious for many, right? In that incident, the San Bernardino shooters uh, were communicating on their phones. FBI couldn't access the phones. And so they went after Apple through a court case trying to compel Apple to break the encryption on its devices. Apple denied. How did it end? That case ended with FBI paying a million dollars to an Israeli company, Subright, to break the device for it. And so we have the full scope of it. Either you don't backdoor or you you rely on spyware companies to solve these problems for you. If we don't have spyware, we're coming back to backdoors. Backdoors would be terrible for cybersecurity. So that is why I am against these types of moratoriums. And I think that those moratoriums will be dangerous to the uh, integrity of our critical communication infrastructures. So at long last, let's move to the international level because that's where your proposed solution is. But before we get to what you're proposing, what already exists and how is it insufficient? Yeah, so the primary tool right now on the international stage to address spyware is something called the Wassenaar Arrangement on Export Controls for Conventional Arms and Dual-Use Goods and Technologies, and that is a mouthful. It's called the Wassenaar Arrangement because it is that. It is an arrangement, meaning it's not a binding treaty, and it therefore is not binding on any of the member states. And what it tries to do is to serve as a multi-stakeholder agreement between the 42 members that aims to voluntarily promote consistency and transparency in the transfer and proliferation of certain kinds of dual-use technologies and goods. That includes certain kinds of surveillance tools, which over time have been defined as part of the Wassenaar list. So in 2012, uh, the members added mobile telecommunication interception equipment, uh, like IMSI catchers. In 2013, they added intrusion software and IP network surveillance systems. That, just defining what those terms are so that they can be added to the Watson arrangement was a huge headache because, again, it created a problem for legitimate researchers who wanted to use some of these tools to engage in legitimate investigations. But ultimately, definitions were adopted, including here in the United States and in the European Union, under the Wassenaar arrangements. What is the problem with the Wassenaar arrangement, beside the obvious fact that it's not legally binding, is that it's not binding on all states, including not all the states who are the primary producers of the spyware tools. And so even if you created some kind of uh, standardization around export controls, which Wassenaar arrangement does not create, but even if you did, you will need to impose it upon all states or a large swath of states in order to have the kind of 
capturing effect so that these companies will not just transition from one country to another. Look, in the context of the NSO group, for example, after all those revelations came into play, Israel introduced significant restrictions. Israel did so not through the Wassenaar arrangement. It did it so because it wanted to. Israel is not a party to Wassenaar, though it claims publicly that it generally abides by Wassenaar's regime. But it did so because all these countries were putting pressure on it, like predominantly France, where Macron has been allegedly one of the targets of NSO group surveillance. So they put pressure on it to do something. What did Israel do? It cut the number of countries that NSO Group and spyware companies in Israel, working from Israel, can sell to from, say, 100 to 30-something. That was a significant hindrance on on these companies. So what did the companies do? They opened branches outside of Israel, or they merged and restructured. So to have headquarters where they're not bound by Israeli restrictions. If export controls are not uniformly applied, what that means is that the weakest link will control what is the standard for the industry. And so they found themselves in countries like Cyprus, uh, where there's a lot more, a lot less restrictions on their ability to trade. Or they might go through a European country to then sell to a third country. They, They will work their way around these export controls to ensure that they are able to continue to engage in their sale. And so in that way, the current international frameworks that we have are patchy, not uniformly applied, not legally binding, and therefore do not provide a sufficient solution to addressing the global spyware problem. So this leads us nicely into your solution to this. And so I was hoping you could sort of sketch it out at a high level and what the main features are, and then we can sort of drill in to specific parts of it. Yeah, certainly. So from everything we've talked about so far, it is clear that what we need is a framework that will at least capture the primary buyers of these technologies. These are rule of law binding rich countries who want to buy these tools for legitimate criminal investigations. They could then leverage their procurement power against these companies to increase a large number of companies to comply with the standards they possess. So we need to create a framework that captures enough companies and enough governments within it, making it a multi-stakeholder solution. That solution will need to be binding on all the parties, not voluntarily undertaken, and would need to put an emphasis on accountability. Now, we need to still preserve the secrecy inherent to the industry, yet if we are ever to create a legitimate marketplace, we need to have some accountability, so some framework around grievance mechanisms. All of these are the elements that I would propose to you should be part of an international framework. The last thing I'll add, though, which I think is unique, is needing is something that I think we should talk about a little, which is the privatization of espionage. So the most dangerous category of spyware tools, um, what we might call military-grade spyware, is spyware that builds on zero-day vulnerabilities. What do we mean by zero-day vulnerabilities? These are vulnerabilities that have had zero days since they've been discovered by the companies that produce those technologies, meaning they have not been discovered and therefore could not have been patched yet to address the vulnerability. These zero-day vulnerabilities are the most lucrative vulnerabilities because they've not been patched. Therefore, they pose the greatest possibility for exploitation and use to target those devices. Zero-day vulnerabilities are a tricky category. They're tricky because while they offer the best intelligence tool, 
they also pose the greatest cybersecurity risk. Why? Because if they haven't been patched, they can be abused by malicious actors from criminal hackers, ransomware gangs, all the way to foreign governments who want to target us. And so it is in our interest to address these particular category of vulnerabilities as one subject to high public scrutiny. The decision on whether or not to hoard these vulnerabilities shouldn't be left in the hands of corporate actors because these corporate actors are not bound by the same public policy rationalization that should be applied and taken into account in deciding whether or not to hoard a particular vulnerability. So far, two countries, the United States and the United Kingdom, have publicly come out and said that they had developed a public process through which to review these kinds of vulnerability hoarding questions. They call them the VAP, the Vulnerabilities Equities Process. And what these countries are saying is essentially that the decision to hoard should be left for a complex, factor-based, context-based analysis that incorporates the whole of government in deciding what are the benefits and risks of a particular vulnerability and deciding whether to keep or not to keep it. If we allow companies to do this work in isolation from the VAP, what that means is that it circumvents the whole purpose of the VAP in the first place. So now companies can do the process that the governments would have otherwise done, decide to predominantly hoard because it serves their bottom line and they're predominantly bound by their shareholders' interests more than anything else and thereby allow governments to buy the very vulnerabilities that they otherwise could not have hoarded through their own VAP process. This is what I mean by privatization of an inherently governmental function or an inherently sovereign function. This idea that there is a core of government process that should be left in the hands of government because of its public security risk that is being privatized to companies in ways that circumvent an important governmental function. And so the last element to any proposal, I would argue to you, has to deal with these particular decisions to hoard zero days. And those, I would argue, should be left with the government, meaning companies can still decide to hoard, but they will have to notify at the design stage uh, to a particular government actor within the country they're operating in that they're deciding to do so and seek consultation and advice from the government before they're allowed to move forward. And would you expect as part of this process that the government would compensate companies if it decides you put all this R&D into finding the zero-day vulnerability, um, it's too dangerous, we need to disclose it, give it to us, but here's a million dollars? Because I could imagine that if that's not the case, then that quite substantially lowers the incentive for these companies to do this research, which we might want them to do for a variety of reasons, either because um, you know we, we think it's useful for this research to be done, or we think that it's important so that we don't have to install back doors or side windows or how, you know, however you want to strain the analogy for, uh, for encrypted devices. I'm curious how that would work out under your system. I, I, I'll be honest. I thought your original question was posing to me whether or not this will be a Fifth Amendment taking. Um, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> but but um, without getting all the way constitutional... Listen, let's, first of all, we need to ask the question whether or not this is a costly process. And where it will definitively be costly is if we allow these companies to first develop these tools on the basis of these vulnerabilities, then have a fully ready to market tool. And now the government steps in and says, oh, 
in the export control licensing stage, oh, by the way, now we realize what it's based on, you cannot sell this. It's too expensive. That would be really costly. And so partially my solution is to say, why is it happening, which is how it's happening right now, so late in the game? Let's start having government be involved in the early stages of design pre-approval before we get to a fully available product and then question whether or not it poses uh, particular kinds of risks. Um, so so that's, that's a partial answer to your question. The, the reality is that everyone in this ecosystem has an interest in identifying vulnerabilities. And we create a lot of incentive structures for people to go after and find these vulnerabilities. Companies have all teams whose job it is to try and spot vulnerabilities. We offer money to um, hackers who will come and hack our devices for us. And, and we create programs where, bitch, please, please let us know about a vulnerability and we will pay you. And the government is obviously in the business of both buying vulnerabilities in the dark markets and in searching for them through its own intelligence uh, communities. So I don't know if I'm necessarily of the opinion that we have to have private actors also be part of this game in order to ensure that we constantly have enough vulnerabilities out there. I think it could be, and, and that's purely an empirical question, but it could be that there's enough already there to identify and search for vulnerabilities without needing to involve uh, companies in this way and to ensure that they're sufficiently compensated so that they continue to do so. I want to finish our discussion with, uh, we can call it, how do you get from here to there question? Um, Because, you know, you point out, right, that even something that's voluntary like Wassenaar is a giant pain in the butt. You know, it's kind of a miracle that it exists in any form and it's super cumbersome. And you're proposing something that's obviously much bigger overhead. It's binding. It's like a whole thing. And so I'd like for you to sort of sketch out, you know, if this were to come to fruition, how would you imagine it? And in particular, I have two questions here. The first is kind of infrastructurally, who would do this? Is this like the UN does this? Is this like the US and the EU do it? Is this like the Five Eyes do it? And then people kind of glom on over time. So there's sort of that question of, of, kind of how it emerges. And then the second kind of maybe deeper question is, why would people agree to this, right? And and even if we say, okay, fine, the Russians and Chinas of the world will never agree to it, but whatever, who needs them? Are we even so sure that the, the like-minded allies will all necessarily kind of come together? What, what's the incentive to cooperate here rather than just defect? Yeah, those are two really, really important questions. So let me start with the first. In my uh, white paper, what I discuss is a, is a parallel model that offers a similar set of challenges uh, for regulation and that had produced a similar kind of international solution to the one that I'm proposing, and that is the ICOCA. So the ICOCA is an international code of conduct for private security service providers, basically military companies. We've seen those, that that was a big story in the early 2000s in the wake of the U.S. war in Iraq and Afghanistan and the increased utilization of private contractors who were running detention facilities, who were managing aspects of the occupation within uh, those territories, and in so doing was also engaged in a lot of human rights abuses. And so responding to that, one country, in that case it was the government of Switzerland, created a framework. Uh, That framework is that ICOCA code of conduct and then an association. It's basically a multi-stakeholder initiative that brings together military companies and governments. And it tries to set standards for the industry. 
that framework isn't good. Okay. It has a lot of problems. And so in any proposal that we will build for spyware that echoes ICOCA will need to address those problems. It needs to be more binding. It needs to have grievance mechanisms. It needs to have stronger buy-in from both the government and the companies. We can talk about each of those elements. I, I, I start to kind of flash those out in the paper. But, but the, the idea, the basic structure is that companies and governments are both part of this framework. They are equally represented. I argue that we need civil society there too, as at least observers. And there will be an ability to approve new companies who want to join the system. Those companies will then be certified. They are compliant with the standard set. And thereby, every government within the system will only buy from these sets of companies. And in the case of abuse, instead of trying to go ad hoc through ad hoc sanctions, ad hoc litigation of the kind that we discussed so far, we go from within the system where we can create a grievance mechanism that is subject to some secrecy to allow to ensure the same protections around national security information, but still go after companies who abuse, who can then be delisted or decertified from within the framework, uh, and therefore no one will buy from them. The other side of this framework, though, is also a set of obligations on the part of the government to our parties. So it's not just the companies who are obligating themselves to meeting certain standards. The governments who are utilizing these technologies will also need to meet certain standards. And in here, I'll tell you one thing that I think is particularly challenging. We haven't had an international human rights framework for the use of spyware. A lot of governments have, and a lot of um, civil society organizations have said, we should put a ban on this industry until such time as an international human rights framework for use of spyware is set. But no one is doing the work of actually suggesting what that framework looks like. How can you use spyware in a safe to human rights protective manner? One individual who's been working hard to come up with such a framework has been uh, Fanula Niolin in her role as the special rapporteur on counterterrorism within the UN human rights framework. Her, in her recent report from um, last year, she had started to flash out what the use of spyware that is human rights protective looks like. And I think we'll need a, a better job at, at, at mapping that. And then we need to make it legally binding through a tailored instrument of the kind that I'm proposing here. So all of this is to say who and what, but your question is why? Why would com- countries be willing to take this kind of initiative on? And in this regard, I want to start by acknowledging that we've already seen a lot of governments showing an interest in this. So in March 2023, the United States and two dozen other countries adopted a code of conduct for the regulation of spyware. That code is quite vague and it's aspirational, but those countries who have signed on to it have all said, we want to develop an international framework. So through the process of the Summit for Democracy, they are meeting yearly to develop what this framework begins to look like. And all I'm proposing in this paper is that at least some of the elements that are built in there could be then picked up as part of a broader menu to be examined by these countries. But these countries are understanding two things. One is that if they are to have a mole's leg to stand on, they cannot be buying the very technologies that they are uh, against. And we just learned that the FBI purchased NSO group t- tools that they were prohibited from buying. <laughs> this was reporting from the New York Times, prohibited from buying under um, an executive order from President Biden. And yet were purchased by 
without sufficient knowledge uh, along the chain of command. And so creating a legitimate marketplace provides you an ability to have a moral leg to stand on. You can say, this is the market. Everything outside of the market is illegal. And therefore, every company that's not here is bad. Every foreign government that's not here is a bad actor. The second thing is that I think this framework also ensures an incentive structure for getting a market for surveillance technologies to go in the direction that it needs to go, having now realized that that surveillance market is a necessary, unfortunate reality of the need to conduct criminal investigation in the age of encryption, but simultaneously that the risk for abuse are severe, and so there needs to be some standardizations put in place. I think that that's where the governments are heading, and therefore starting to map out what that framework looks like can only be taking the conversation in the right direction. So I just want to flag for listeners, Asaf, you mentioned Fanula Neolan's report. Uh, she was actually on the podcast a, a few months ago, and so folks can uh, listen to our conversation about that. But Asaf, I think this is a good place to end our conversation. Thank you so much and, and for writing the fabulous paper. It's going to be so useful to policymakers and folks thinking about this. And so really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya-Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/retail23. shopify.com/retail23.